the house. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get to go to Africa, which I was really bummed about, um, but that's okay. Maybe next time. Um, but I was here at Solstice, and it was a it was a it was a bizarre kind of like I'm I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to not have to do anything. Like I have no responsibilities tonight. But I had this. I was sitting over here, and I just had this like I'm chomping at the bit because, quite frankly, gang, I love what I do. I really do. And so this week, uh, I I had a moment on like Wednesday or so when I was reading uh, this passage that we're going to talk about tonight, and it was just light bulbs flashing, right? Just bing, ding, 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 and between the Holy Spirit and the Lord and creative juice and all this other kind of stuff. I'm pumped to be here tonight. I've been looking forward to this all week long. So I was telling some folks over here, I hope it's as good for you as it was for me uh, because I really enjoyed studying this this week. Uh, We're in a series called Everything Will Change. Why? Why would we be talking about Everything Will Change? I'll tell you why. Because Easter just happened and resurrection is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. Amen? Amen? Yes. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sin was really, really important. But I would argue more important than that was the fact that he was resurrected from the dead, which has all kinds of implications for life, for theology, for the afterlife, for all kinds of stuff. And so in this series, Everything Will Change, we're working out the implications of resurrection. We want to not just talk about Easter and resurrection on one Sunday, but we think that it has to do with everything. And so we're going we're gonna to milk this one for all it's worth. And uh, we're in about week three or four, I think. And so tonight we're talking about resurrecting the past. Resurrecting the past, which could be, um, you know, a bit maybe, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, uh, typical, you know, it could be, you know, it could be pretty typical. I mean, you've heard this message before, right? Jesus forgives your past and wipes away as far as the east is from the west. But man, we are going in such a different direction. I am pumped. So Matthew 22, if you have your Bibles, open them to that, to that passage. We're in Matthew 22. We're going to start in verse 23. So if you would stand as we read God's word, I would appreciate it. If you can uh, join me. This is Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 23. says this, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. This is Jesus, of course. They came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. And finally, the woman died. Now then, at resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Verse 29, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God sent to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. God, as we look into your, your scriptures at, at this particular passage, which was written so long ago to a group of people who we don't know. Uh, Would you, amidst our time together, open our hearts, open our minds by your spirit, would you guide us uh, to truth and what is true about you 
and about resurrection and what that has to do with our past, God. Uh, We entrust the next uh, few moments to you and believe with all of our hearts that you want to say something to us. So give us the eyes to see you and the ears to hear you. We pray in your name by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat if you would. Uh, One of my favorite authors is a guy named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a scholar, a New Testament scholar. He lives in Durham, England. He's a bishop of an Anglican church over there. Wicked smart guy. He tells a story about, uh, he was a part of like a a board, you know, the kind of thing for a school. And uh, on this particular board, there were a number of people, and two of them happened to be a little older, a little, now I'm not always saying that older people are set in their ways, but these two in this particular story happened to be older, happened to be set in their ways, and uh, these were the kind of folks that whenever a new idea would come, you know, to the board level, they would object to it. You know, if it was new, if it was fresh, it required them to think differently about the way things were. Or if it didn't fit with their agenda, they would often sort of, you know, push it to the side or, or, or give some objection to the, to the reason why they didn't want, you know, whatever was being discussed by the board to pass. One particular instance, he tells a story about this board and somebody, they've got mailboxes, right, in, in the students. And the students are, they actually share mailboxes because they don't have enough. So you've got a number of different students all putting their mail in one box, or the, the mail person putting all the students' mail in one box. And so they said, what if we built the mailboxes all the way to the floor level, and then we had more mailboxes, and so all the students could have their own mailbox, right? Brilliant idea. Well, the two older uh, Folks uh, objected to this, and they said, now, suppose if we built the mailboxes all the way to the floor, and then suppose someone was walking their dog, and suppose this dog had to relieve himself, and suppose, you know, like dogs do, they did their thing on the mailboxes, and can you imagine if that was your mailbox, would you want to go get your mail? (laughs) I mean, who thinks of this stuff, right? And so everyone laughed and whatever. But the point is, they didn't end up making the mailboxes as low as they wanted to be. Now, in this particular story within Matthew, the group of people that we're dealing with, called the Sadducees, are a bit like these old stodgy folks on the board who were a bit set in their ways. These folks did not believe in the resurrection. Matthew even tells us, now the Sadducees came who did not believe in the resurrection. Everybody knows this about them. The rest of the Jewish people all had some kind of an idea that at some point in the future, God would resurrect people, right? And, 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 but these folks, they didn't believe that. And they were a bit set in their ways. And any time that, that something didn't fit into their agenda, they would sort of, you know, object, you know, foul or throw the flag. And this particular story, I find a bit humorous, right? These are people who don't even believe in the resurrection. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, teacher, good teacher, at the resurrection, which you don't believe in, um, imagine that there's a dude and he marries a a girl and the dude dies. And and, and then they go on and and you know how this all goes. Um, Jesus' response to this group of people in their question is bizarre and brilliant at the same time. And the question that I want to start with tonight is this. What on earth, or why on earth, does Jesus connect resurrection with three dead guys from Israel's past? Right? They're asking him a question about resurrection. And Jesus' answer is, you don't know the, power, you don't know the scriptures or nor the story of, nor the power of God. And he says something about 
Three dead guys from the past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why on earth does Jesus connect resurrection with three dead guys from the past? And what does resurrection have to do with the past anyhow? Jesus gives an answer that is brilliant. And and in it, we get a glimpse of the God who is behind resurrection we get a glimpse of this God who's actually behind the event of resurrection and the hope it gives us regarding our past. And so tonight, I want to walk through this passage. I want to just walk through it verse by verse with you and give you some thoughts and kind of set up what Matthew has set up for us. And then I want to land this plane uh, because at the end of it, Jesus gets to, he kind of gets to the point at the end. He's like, but for the resurrection, he says, let me just get to the heart of this, okay? And that's where we're going to land this thing at the end. So I want to walk through it. So let's start in verse 23. Uh, And I would start with this, that the question itself, the, the very question that the Sadducees are asking is based on a premise that is about to change. So verse 23, they say, that same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, come to Jesus. They say, teacher, Moses told us if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven, can you imagine the, the situation? Jesus, can you believe it? Now imagine if there were seven brothers and, and the first one dies and she has no children, so she leaves him to his brother. But then, get this, the second guy dies and the third guy dies and all the way down the line and the seventh brother dies and, and no children. And finally the woman dies, there's no children. Who, uh, at the resurrection, whose wife, will be, who, whose wife will she be of the seven? All of them were married to her. The whole passage... This question that they're asking is getting at a, uh, a very important question to a first century Jewish person. And it has to do with a passage that comes out of Deuter- Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. And it's called a Leverite marriage. Now what happens in the Old Testament times, uh, it's tapping into this passage, which is a command of God, which explains that if a man dies, he's to essentially allow his, or his brother is, is supposed to marry his widow, and then hopefully... She will, uh, or, or he will be able to give her sons, which will what? Which will carry on the family line, which will carry on the family name. And this will ensure that the identity of the people of God, right? Because this is the people of God. We're talking about Israel here. And so God says, um, how are we going to keep this thing going? If, 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 the, if, if the seed or the line or the family in, in, uh, you know, sort of generations are passed on through sons and we have these, this woman who has a husband and he dies and they don't have any sons, how do we keep this thing going? So the Leverite marriage was a way in which a brother could step in and in his brother's stead, hopefully, give sons to the, the widow and that way the family line would be carried on. Oh, it makes sense. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this idea of seed or family or lineage is very, very, very important. Why? It actually defined you as a person. It defined who you were. It defined uh, where you stood in culture and where you stood in the community and, and where you've come from. The, the, your past, your parents, the family that is yours defined who you were. So the entire question that these Sadducees ask Jesus is based on an assumption that the people of God is defined by what's in your past. The people of God is defined by who your family members were. The people of God is defined by who your parents were in the rearview mirror. And we know 
fast forward into the New Testament, that what Jesus is about to do is redefine the people of God, where it will no longer depend on a nationhood or a lineage of a certain group of people in the world, but rather, what does Paul say? Anyone who is, come on, Colossians or Ephesians, in Christ, right? Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And, and this new creation makes up this new people of God, the ecclesia, the church of the New Testament. So the question that they're asking is based on an assumption that is about to change. And resurrection and Christ offer a new way to not only be the people of God, but how we define ourselves as human beings in a, in a community and in a context and in a culture. And so Jesus, in a very brilliant fashion, is he's about to unpack for these skeptical Sadducees and for all of those who are listening just exactly what's at stake with the resurrection here. So he starts there, and then he moves on in verse 29. In verse 30, he says, Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. So he starts and he says, You do not know the, the Scriptures. Basically, he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people who, who pride themselves on the fact that they have the Torah, God's revelation to them. And these folks would have known the Torah. They would have known the scriptures. If you do any study on the way in which kids were raised in this culture, it was phenomenal. By like the age of 13, many of them had the entire Old Testament, which was at that time, um, uh, the, the, you know, the Torah, memorized from front to back, like could verbatim repeat it. It's, it's incredible. So these are the people who know the scriptures. And Jesus says, number one, When we're talking about resurrection, you don't know the scriptures. And number two, you don't know the past. So first, you don't know the scriptures. Again, the Sadducees, or he goes on in verse 30 and he says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The Sadducees are trying to mock Jesus and they're trying to mock this idea of the resurrection. They don't believe in it. So they ask a question which is outlandish. It's ridiculous. Suppose a dog came and suppose that he did his thing on the mail. Can you imagine? They they, they pose this hypothetical question that they don't even believe in in the first place. And they're operating, again, they're operating with an assumption that the resurrection renders useless. And And the assumption is this. The Sadducees believe that yesterday is going to look exactly like tomorrow. Or, 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 or zoom out a little bit. They believe that this world that we live in is going to look exactly like if resurrection is true, right? They're saying, Jesus, if it's true, which they don't believe it is. But if it is, what will happen to this woman and who will she marry? They're assuming that this life and the way relationships work in this life will be exactly like relationships in the new world. They believe that tom- yesterday is going to look exactly like tomorrow. We know, of course, from later in the Gospels that this world and our physical bodies don't look like they will in the new world, in resurrection. We get this from Jesus. Jesus is walking in the great, great passage in Luke, at the end of Luke's gospel. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples, and they don't even recognize who he is. They walk with him, and they walk with him, and he talks and talks. And then they finally, they realize who he is, and it says, did our hearts not burn within us when he spoke? They can't even recognize this guy that they've lived with for three and a half years. So something about Jesus' appearance is so radically different that they don't recognize who he is. Mary, she thinks he's a gardener when she sees him at the tomb. She doesn't recognize him. So in some ways, 
our, our existence here in the old world is going to look very, very different than it will in, in resurrection world. And yet in some ways, it's very similar. Jesus shows up with his buddies in, in, in the upper room, and what's the first thing he asks them for? Does anybody remember this? He says, I'm hungry. Does anybody have anything to eat? Which is great, right? I've just been risen from the dead. I am famished. Does anybody have uh, some fish or some chips or something? Because throw me a bone here. I'm dying. <laughs> I got you. I already died. Thank you. <laughs> I was like a groaner foul at uh, comedy sports. Okay, so here's the thing. Jesus tells him, he says, you don't know the scriptures because you're assuming that relationships, right, the marital relationship in the old world is going to look exactly like it does in the new world. But Jesus says, no, you will not be given in marriage, nor will anyone be given to you in marriage, but rather you will be like what? The angels, which is bizarre. Let's unpack that a little bit. Here's the thing. In and through resurrection, when resurrection happens, when God raises you to new life, You have passed through and into a new world in which death and decay and destruction have been left behind. So you came from this world where death and decay and destruction were a part of your reality. And when God raises you to new life in resurrection, you will pass from this world into a new world where death and destruction and decay no longer exist. Because if they do, death has won and life has not won. And that is not the story of the Gospels. Jesus says, no, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? I have conquered death. So if you live in this world where death and destruction and decay is a part of your reality and God raises you to new life on this side of resurrection, what will not be present is death, decay, and destruction. And so Jesus says, let me talk to you a little bit about biology, okay? He says, if this is true, if this is true, and death and decay and destruction happen over here, but they don't happen over here. If death and decay and destruction happen here, and people's bodies die, and people, they they no longer exist, they live a life and then they die, how will you continue humanity? Kids, close your ears. Sex, okay? Procreation. So where death and destruction and decay is present, there is a means by which humanity can continue to live by the gift of life that God has given us and in our ability to procreate. And when you're talking about the the people of God, this is why the, the seed, the line, the lineage was so important in the Old Testament. Because death and decay and destruction is a part of their reality. It's a part of their world. And so if it is, then we've got to have sons which can carry on this line. So Jesus says, Sadducees, time out. You're missing something here. You're assuming that relationships are going to look the same here as they will here. Let me remind you that if death, decay, and destruction is not present here, what will not be necessary? Which is why Jesus says you will not be given in marriage and you will not take anyone in marriage, but you will be like the angels many believe, are non-sexual beings. Now, before you get your panties all in a bundle here and get all kind of bent out of shape, I do not want to enter a discussion on the theology of sexuality in the resurrection. All I want to say is this. Jesus seems pretty... Um, pretty he, he, he makes a point to remind the Sadducees that at resurrection, everything changes. 
Because what once was a part of your reality is no longer in a new world where God raises you into new life. Death, decay, and destruction is no longer present, at which point the need to procreate is not necessary anymore. And so, I don't, I, I, I don't, again, I don't want to get into the, the, the details of all that, but resurrection changes everything, and even, arguably, one of the most amazing, greatest joys and pleasures that the human can experience in an intimate relationship between a man and a woman. Now, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping, just like, Jesus' body was pretty cool here, right, in the old world. Upon resurrection, it was like, dude, whoa, man, I mean, can you believe it? I'm hoping that, I mean, sex is a pretty bizarre thing. It's, a, it's an odd brainchild, right? It's an odd, you know, uh, conception in the mind of God. I'm thinking that on the other side in resurrection, look out. It's going to be whatever it is, however we relate to one another. Because, I'm, I mean, l- listen to me here. What I'm really getting at is, is the, the, the beautiful, amazing, intimate connection between two human beings that is at the essence and core of what it means to be human. That's what sex is. Whatever, whatever vehicle by which we relate to one another and connect to each other as we were made to connect to each other in resurrection is going to just blow our minds away it's going to be incredible so jesus says you don't know the scriptures you won't be given to each other in marriage you'll be like the angels and i think that's what he's getting at on a broad brush stroke level okay without getting into the details of it now third he goes in and he says so he starts with he starts with this idea of uh uh where where did it go where did i start what was a Oh, the entire question is based on a premise that's about to change. And then he says, you don't know the scriptures. And then he says, and you don't know the power of God. And this is where I want to camp. This is where I want to land this thing. Because this is brilliant. So Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. Verse 31, he says, but about the angels are about the resurrection of the dead. So I've, I've discussed the whole you don't know the scriptures piece. You're misinformed. And you're, you're baiting me with this resurrection thing you don't even believe about. But if you're going to go there, let me go ahead and tell you what I believe, what, what it is about the resurrection. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If I could paraphrase what Jesus is trying to get at when he says to the Sadducees, about the resurrection of the dead. Let me tell you about the God who's behind. I think what he's saying is, in missing the resurrection, if you miss resurrection, what you miss is the very God behind the resurrection. And at resurrection, God is at his most brilliant. It is a phenomenal, unbelievable, fantastic You can't even fathom it response to death and destruction and everything that the enemy would have to offer. And to do so, Jesus reminds the Sadducees that the God behind the resurrection is in fact the God of three dead guys in Israel's past. What the flip is that? I mean, seriously, he's on this resurrection train and he's going for it. And then he's like, the God of the resurrection is about... He's connected to the three dead guys from a thousand years ago bizarre vexing answer to the question why does jesus connect resurrection with three dead guys from israel's past and what does resurrection have to do with the past this my friends is the brilliant way in which jesus is about to peel back the curtain 
and reveal to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear who this God is and what he's about and what resurrection has to do with your past. And in this moment, because really, what, what is Jesus saying about this God by connecting him to three dead guys in Israel's past? It would appear, it would appear from, from the outside looking in. Jesus is on this resurrection train and he's talking about it and then he connects it to these three dead guys. And it would appear from the outside looking in that life has not won, right? The essence of who God is is a life-giving force. We talked about this at Easter. It would appear from the outside looking in that life has not won, but rather death has won. So why does Jesus connect this God of the living, and resurrection to the three dead guys. It is true, according to the scriptures, that God is a God and is the God of the living, of all that is good and beautiful and true and right and, and, and perfect about this world. And if resurrection is the authentication of this God that wins in the end, then somehow... God must be preserving and holding up in eternity outside of time all that is good, beautiful, true, and right. Let me say that again because it's a mind bender. It's true, according to the scriptures, that God is the God of the living. He's the God of life. He's the God of everything that is true, right, beautiful, perfect, noble, wonderful about this world. If he is that, and if resurrection is the authentication that this God wins in the end, then somehow, some way, God has to be upholding and preserving all that is good, true, beautiful, right, perfect about this world. Because if he isn't, and it gets destroyed by death, then what wins? Not life. Death. Death wins. If somehow this everything that's good, perfect, true, beautiful, right about the world, if God is not somehow holding that out, holding that up, preserving that in eternity past, somehow outside of time, if he's not doing that, and it somehow gets washed away, wiped away with death, destruction, and all of that, we have a problem on our hands. Insert the Jewish belief, which, by the way, Jesus was Jewish. Insert the Jewish belief in the first century that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not actually dead, 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 rotting, decomposing in the ground, never to be seen from again. The very seed, the very essence, the very core of the people of God in the world, but rather that they were awaiting that which was good and right and true about them because of God, that they were awaiting resurrection, baby. Resurrection. Imagine if Jesus, when talking about resurrection, connects this God who is the God of life, the God of everything that is right, true, and good, and it, it, it emanates from him, if this God is the God of resurrection and he's behind the curtain, then what we're dealing with at resurrection is a God who's preserving that which is good, that which is whole, that which is true about the world, and he will one day bring it back and he will one day say, it's all mine and it's coming back because it's mine and it's good at resurrection. You may be saying, okay, 
Interesting. Interesting way to think about this. I would argue that there's really no other good reason why Jesus connects resurrection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, my friends, these three people from whom God's rescue mission in the world began, they're not dead, 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 like dead, gone, annihilation, dead. No, they are awaiting the day in which resurrection and rebirth will bring them back into the good world that God has made. And so for you and for me, Let me land this thing. For you and for me, our ultimate hope in in reference to resurrection and the past is this. That the God behind resurrection is the God who is holding up, who is preserving everything that is right, true, beautiful, good. And it will last in God's good world. It's not destroyed. So what you and I do in Christ, what we do matters. The things that we participate in here and now. It's like, okay, let me me give you an analogy with music. If I just speak and something's amplifying my voice with no like delay or effects on my voice, it's just the word is spoken and then it's like gone, okay? Resurrection ensures that what we do now, if it is in line and, it, and it, it, it flows from the essence of who God is in that it's life-giving and true and right and good, it's like it has reverb and it carries on into the future. It carries on into God's good world because those are the things that will last. So for your past, Our ultimate hope concerning resurrection in our past is that whatever is not life, whatever is not of life, whatever is of death in the form of sin, decay, regret, mistake, aggression, manipulation, self-service, malice, deceit, slander, gossip, any of those things will not last. Why? Because they are from death and death does not win. Life wins. And so if you think about yourself and you think about the places that you've been, you think about the road that you've traveled, the people that you've encountered, those good and those bad, and you think about what's in the rear of your mirror, the things that are of death, the things that are of sin and destruction and of mistakes and regret and, and, and manipulation and all of those things, they won't last Because, amen, because at resurrection, something decisive happened. And it's life wins. Jesus wins. And God wins. And that which is anything that is not of God will not last in the new world on the other side of resurrection. So I want you to think about something right now. If you have a pen, you have a piece of paper, I want you to write, maybe just think about your past. The things that... The things that define you or have defined you, have haunted you, uh, the, the, the voices that you hear in your head, the, the, the words that replay, the things that are not of God, that are not of life, write them down. If it's a person, if it's a word, if it's something that happened, if it's something that somebody said, write it down. Think about it. Go ahead. You have your, your, bullet, your worship folder. And I want to remind you, I want you to look at it And I want you to know that those things will not last. 
Resurrection ensures that the God who is behind resurrection is the God of life and of the living. And this is what will pass through this world and into the next when God wins. Our ultimate hope is that this, this God that Jesus reveals is a God who is holding those things up and preserving those things that are good and right and true and, and line up with the essence of who he is and how he made this world. And those things will last. And that which is not, it will be gone. And so for you and for your past, what is it that you hang on to? That you just won't let go of? Because of, for whatever reason. I just had an experience a couple weeks ago maybe a week ago, in my backyard, where I had something that I had allowed to somewhat define who I was as a person and as a leader and as a teacher and as a speaker. Some things that were said about me that maybe weren't true, but but I allowed those things to define who I was. I allowed those things that were not of life and goodness and truth and beauty, and I allowed those things to hang around. And so I gathered some friends around and I said, can I just ask, can I lean on you guys for an evening? I said, I need you to remind me of what's true and and right about, about me as a person. And they spoke some things into my life. And around a campfire, uh, in a, in a bunch of idiot guys, uh, somehow by the grace of God, I took what was here and I threw it in the fire, and I burned, and it's gone. And for me, <laughs> impeccable timing that God would lead me to this passage and this week and resurrecting the past and that whole bit. But I want to ask you that question. What is it that you hang on to, that you allow to define who you are, that isn't of truth or life and, and of God? Because the truth of the matter is, the reality of it is, that it's not going to last. And the only person and the only thing that's keeping it around is most likely you. Because you believe it, because you won't let go of it, because you keep coming back to it, because whatever number of reasons. And Jesus pulls back the curtain on this God behind resurrection, and it's a God who holds up goodness and life and truth, not those other things. Our penultimate hope or our secondary hope is this, the very same God. Like, so at a huge, massive level, this is what's going on on a, a, you know, like 30,000 foot level. This is the God we're talking about. This is what happens at resurrection. But when the rubber meets the road, it's not just a God who stays up here, but this God who's shown himself to us in Jesus is actually present in the midst of our day-to-day time and space, blood and flesh, sweat and tears reality. So the God who sits outside of time and who holds up and preserves that which is good and true also enters into our world and our reality. And what does he do when he gets here? Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 65 talk about a God who takes that which is ashes, which is an Old Testament way of saying destruction and death and mourning and grieving. And what does God do with it? He turns our ashes into beauty. He takes that which is untrue and wrong and broken and he makes it that which is pure and right and good. Unbelievable! That, my friends, is fantastic news. That's good news. 
So not only do we have a God who's up here outside of space and time, but we have a God who is like right here, sweat and blood, flesh and bone, tears and sweat and the whole deal. And he says to you and to me, come all you who are weary, I will give you rest. Come, those of you who have no money, who are broke, who are down and out, and I will meet you there, and I will give you the richest affair, drink and eat. This is the God of the scriptures. This is the God of the Bible. And this is the God that Jesus reveals to us that Matthew tells us about in this passage. And so I guess I would just challenge you tonight, guys. Resurrection. reminds us, Jesus reminds us that resurrection changes everything. It changes the very nature of God's people, how they're defined, how we as people are defined. Uh, It it changes the very nature of relationships and how we'll interact. It has implications that are so far-reaching. Most importantly, it's it's that this God who is behind resurrection is the same God who in eternity is preserving and upholding that which is right and true and that which is of life. And it will last forever in God's good new world when he comes back and who is simultaneously in the midst of our mess by defeating death on that cross he ensures that everything that is of death and of sin and decay and destruction will not last but it will be destroyed that's fantastic I love it can I pray and uh, we're going to sing one more song Um, and then we're going to have some pizza together, which is a fitting way to end talk about resurrection. (laughs) So let me pray. God, we're uh, so grateful that you um, have done everything that you've done, that you created out of love and uh, that out of the very essence and and nature of who you are, life has come forth, and uh, life that was good, that is good, though marred and sabotaged by the enemy. God, uh, we're grateful that not only have you created and made this world that we live in, but that you care enough to outside of time and space to, to, to preserve, to keep, to hold the things that are good and right and beautiful and true and to promise to usher them back, that they will carry on into your new world, God, when you come back, And resurrection changes everything. We want to be the kind of church that calls people to that new hope, God, to that life, to that uh, that opportunity that is only found in you, Jesus. May we never give us courage to never back down from the fact that this is, according to your scriptures, this is found in you, Jesus, and no one else. And so we, we pray and ask that you would guide us, that you would teach us, that you would lead us to be the kind of people, the kind of church, the kind of new humanity that exists here and now as the first fruits of what's to come, which is resurrection. We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit.